You're listening to For the Record, a Registrar podcast. I'm Dr. David Ferris, Executive Director of Safety and Emergency Management at George Mason University, and this is Emergency Management in You. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Record, a Registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and we have a very timely episode this time. I guess that really all depends on when you're listening to this. Hmm. Anyway, if you've been paying attention to the news at all recently, you've heard of the novel coronavirus that originated in Wuhan, China, and has now spread around the world with confirmed cases in China, Australia, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, France, Germany, the United States, and Canada among others. The virus has, so far, followed the pattern of previous pandemic illnesses, MERS and SARS, for example, and other contagious infectious diseases. So we live in a global society, and that global interconnectedness can leave us susceptible to outbreaks of this nature. This episode is not about the COVID-19 virus specifically, although admittedly it was the impetus for this episode. It gives an opportunity to contemporaneously document and memorialize steps that are more generally thought exercises. So our topic today addresses the ways the registrar participates in and contributes to campus emergency response plans. We'll be joined in a few minutes by George Mason University's Director of Public Safety and Emergency Response, Dr. David Ferris, who has had an exceptionally busy month or so. So right up at the top, though, let's level set. I am not a doctor. Any medical advice delivered during this episode has been gathered from reliable internet sources like the CDC or the Mayo Clinic, but your results may vary. During cold and flu season, it's important to adhere to best practices for avoiding the spread of germs. Wash your hands with soap and warm water. Wash your hands frequently throughout the day. Avoid rubbing your eyes or putting your hands in your mouth or nose. Use hand sanitizer. Cough into your bent elbow, not into the palm of your hand. And if you're sick, stay home to avoid exposing others to your germs. Encourage your staff to do the same. Encourage your faculty to do the same and your students to do the same. Right now, here in the United States, you're about a million times more likely to be exposed to the flu than to COVID-19. But let's all try to reduce the spread of infectious diseases by using common sense and good hygiene. So now, on to the topic at hand. Let's start with some foundational principles. Your office should have a continuity of operations plan. If you don't have one, you should reach out to your public safety or emergency management team on campus and talk through how to set one up. We'll talk a little bit more about continuity of operations plans, COOPs, toward the end. Public safety or emergency management is one of the many groups on campus with whom registrars should have a very strong and positive working relationship. Our respective missions intersect, and we frequently work together on events planning, whether academic or otherwise, and to coordinate on a variety of items, including the class schedule in academic buildings, so they can be sure the building is unlocked, for example. Public safety and emergency management are a helpful team to have some contact with. So reach out, go for coffee, 
if you don't know someone in that capacity at your campus. All right. So speaking of, let's meet Dr. David Ferris, the Executive Director of Safety and Emergency Management at George Mason University. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us today about the ways that registrar's offices can support safety and emergency management efforts at an institution. And so first off, what do emergency managers do? do? What are your responsibilities here at Mason? Absolutely. And I'm, I can't speak on behalf of all emergency managers, but given my experience, I'll try to make this as general as possible so that everyone gets a sense of what most emergency managers do in institutions of higher education. So um, there's, you know, FEMA's had a couple different phases of emergency management. Generally, there's about five, right? And I'll, I'd like to walk through each of those five phases because sure. it's a really broad scope of responsibilities. And more often than not, we tend to get focused on just that response phase. And unfortunately, a lot of our effort goes into the preparedness, prevention, and mitigation phases of emergency management. So right. that first phase is prevention. So th that's ways that we identify uh, within the institution to prevent things from occurring in the first place. And maybe one of the best ways to think about this is um, threat assessment committees in institutions of higher education. How do we identify those individuals that need assistance, provide care to them, and the help that they need to prevent harmful things from happening to them or others at our institutions? And other uh, more generic examples are things like fire suppression and alarm systems, um, infection control procedures, which I imagine many institutions are talking about right now with the, um, with the emergence of uh, coronavirus. So those are examples of preventative steps. The next is preparedness. And honestly, I probably spend the bulk of my time in this phase of emergency management. And that is the training, the resources, the planning, and the exercises that we uh, implement, design and implement to help our community be prepared for an emergency, if it should occur. So under things like training, for example, um, active threat training, that's either in person or online. Many institutions now are creating videos. So mm -hmm. that's a, and you can peruse those on the web, find those, and maybe something institu institutions are interesting in doing, interested in doing rather. Uh, we conduct emergency preparedness training workshops where we sit down with departments and talk through the various scenarios that might occur on campus. And I imagine many other emergency managers are doing the same. Obviously, we conduct fire drills and on a regular schedule. We participate in regional, and this is true throughout the nation, there's often opportunities to participate in regional earthquake or tornado drills. Huh. We do those as well. Uh, those are optional. Obviously, we don't shut down the entire institution <laughs> to participate in those. Thank but you. we do send you. Yes, exactly. I, I can imagine what kind of headache that would cause for you and your audience. Appreciate that um, very much. We conduct emergency operations group training. We can talk about that more. But how do we onboard those critical personnel that are going to be part of an institutional emergency response? Um, and then we're also identifying those key personnel and reviewing their responsibilities and emergency plans. And that can happen at an institutional level or at a departmental level. So that's the training component of that. Then we move into the resources part of this, which is um, what are the resources we're developing for the community so that they can access those resources, preferably before the emergency occurs, and be familiar with our emergency response procedures. So that is obviously documented emergency response procedures that we have either posted online, which we do, uh, in poster format, posted in conspicuous locations throughout campus. We have these handy pocket guides that we've produced and yeah. custom made. I have we, one on my desk, actually. They, they're yeah. the most popular resource. We thought everybody's going to go to an app, and we tried that. We had a very low adoption rate, and come to find out everybody wants it in, in print, which is great. Uh, we've developed shelter area signage for severe weather shelter locations and worked with departments to identify those shelter locations. Building evacuation signage, locations of AEDs, um, pole stations, fire suppression equipment, things like that. Uh, written emergency plans, uh, as I mentioned, but we also support other departments in doing their own departmental planning. If they need to go above and beyond the resources we have or the templates we provide, we allow them to create their own plan and we'll work with them on that to make sure it's in sync with everything that we recommend. 
Um, some of the other things that we do that people might not be aware of is we work with um, our police and local fire department to uh, create alphanumeric door signs on the exterior doors to help emergency responders. So, yeah, I mean, uh, 61 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's so much, and that, that, I mean, that's, that's probably one of the most popular things we've done because it helps people, I, A, find the, um, the door that they're supposed to go to. So I found that students use them for food delivery more than anything else. And then our, um, and our, obviously our first responders like it so if they can identify where their colleagues might be or need assistance in the event of an emergency. So that's sort of the, some of the resources. And, and there's many, many more out there. And there's, I will give emergency managers this. We tend to be pretty creative. And a lot of these resources are customized to the, each institution, which I think is really important yeah, in critical, our job. I would say. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it depends on how receptive your audience is to each of these technologies. Exactly. So then we get into the planning part, and we maintain a number of plans. I'm, I'm a big fan of planning because of the process. Um, the plans themselves uh, can become obsolete in some cases, but the, the process of planning is, is what's most valuable. So we have um, plans based around a number of different potential uh, conditions that might exist on campus. I try to stay away from specific scenarios only because it's very difficult to – Anticipate. Plan for everything. Correct. Yeah. So we take an all hazards approach. It's a common term used in emergency management. And as a matter of fact, the CDC a couple of years back um, had a zombie apocalypse exercise. And they <laughs> and their their point was, we have plans that are designed for everything. You know, if we yeah. can if it if it can deal with a zombie apocalypse, we can deal with something like coronavirus, for sure. example. Um, sure. And we actually learned this sort of the hard way in 2011 when we had an earthquake. We had not planned for an earthquake to occur in Northern Virginia. Very rare. And um, but our process worked, and so I'm very much a, a process-oriented emergency planner. But that being said, there are some plans we have to maintain, and so sure. we obviously maintain an emergency operations plan. That's the structure the institution adopts whenever we're in, in an emergency. We have various emergency support functions that uh, that are annexes essentially to that emergency operations plan or EOP that identify specific responsibilities of the of the positions and units that are represented in our emergency operations group. For example, what would parking and transportation do in a crisis? What would they be responsible for? Providing shuttle service, things like that. Um, And then we actually have emergency support functions that, um, I'm sorry, we actually have emergency um, annexes to our emergency operations plan that define, um, in general terms, what we would do to shelter our population on campus, how we might evacuate campus, Mm -hmm. the services that we can provide to those folks that have special needs, uh, what do we do in the event of a death on campus, um, if there's protests or civil disturbance on campus, how do we as an institution generally respond to that? Yeah. And so those are important because it, those are issues we can anticipate and we need some guidance for that. Um, we also have a communicable disease plan, which we may talk about a little bit later. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Imagine everyone is either working on theirs or is, is knocking the dust off of an old plan. We have training and exercise plans. So how do we tend to shepherd the institution through the next couple years of training uh, around various topics? Uh, I'll give you an example. We're focusing this year on climate change. Um, in years past, we've looked at cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year happened to be communicable disease, which was interesting. Uh, we've also looked at, exactly, uh, active threats. Um, so we've looked at all these things. And what we tend to do around the training aspect is we hold a seminar in the spring to introduce our executives and our emergency operations group to a topic. So we'll have a one to two hour seminar with a um, typically a, a professional from outside the institution. This year, we're actually partnering with some faculty to talk through climate change. So, for example, a couple years ago, we brought in a vice president from Microsoft to talk about cybersecurity. And, of course, they're able to bring this wealth of knowledge to us and and case studies to help uh, illuminate the problem. 
we take that information and we turn it into a discussion-based exercise, a tabletop exercise that we hold with the executives and our emergency operations group. And then depending on the scenario, it's kind of hard to do this with cybersecurity, we'll hold a functional exercise. We'll actually have um, people move around and, and execute the procedures they have documented in their plans. And that's, that's the, the third phase of that. And we try to re- replicate that process every year or that series of exercises every year, yeah. um, which we found to be very effective. And it keeps things sort of fresh and new. Um, we assist, as I mentioned, departments with individual planning, and then we have some state-mandated um, plans. We're party to a couple emergency proceed- or emergency plans rather for the Northern Virginia area, okay. and we're party to that, and so we, we maintain those plans as well. So just a general snapshot of, of, of planning. We have, we have quite a few more, but that's probably enough to talk about this morning. <laughs> um, and then we get into the response, right? So we have yeah. a response as well. So um, one of the things that we manage, and this is – dependent on the institution. Sometimes it's your communications office. Sometimes it's the police. We manage our emergency notification system here at, at Mason. And that actually takes quite a bit of effort depending on um, how it's configured and, and the administrative procedures. And we've got that streamlined now where it doesn't require as much work, but that in of itself is a regular job responding to inquiries, making sure all 56,000 users are satisfied with that service and right. responding to concerns around their account and things like that. Um, I think the the most fun part of my job is, is managing our emergency operations group. And so that's facilitating um, that group when, when they get together and um, to come up with an institutional response and, and make sure we're addressing all the various concerns because each one of the emergency operations, operations group members has unique customers and unique, unique needs. And Definitely. so how do we collaborate to come up with an institutional response that meets all those needs? And that's – and I also love working with everybody in our in our rooms. So we have about 15 different groups that are represented by three individuals. And that's important because we want to make sure that uh, in the event someone's on vacation, they've got uh, a backup person that can yeah. come to the emergency operations center and represent their respective department. So those groups, groups get together. And then during that emergency, the EOG is primarily uh, responsible for gathering information for public messaging. Um, and and that's that's a primary duty, but but most importantly, we're trying to provide support to the incident commander and the incident response structure that's on scene. Got it. And so I want to differentiate between the emergency operations group and and their actual response effort. The response effort, in my opinion, is is really tactical, and sure. that's your first responders, your law enforcement, your fire, EMS, um, maybe other federal or state agencies that are on scene, on the ground. Um, either in harm's way and controlling that perimeter and everything inside. Got it. The emergency operations group becomes sort of that operational level of the organization that's providing support to everybody out, everybody on scene, but then everybody outside that perimeter. Questions, concerns, relocation of individuals, um, materials, uh, information, physical assistance that might be needed to respond to that. We're, we're providing that level. And then so in addition to providing support sort of down the chain, we're also providing information and recommendations up the chain to and that. Out to- and out exactly. So we're buried in that middle layer: the tactical response on in the field, operations in the middle, and then of course um, strategic at the top. And that's our executive group, our, right. our, our executive council, in our case. So that's that's what we're really focused on: is that emergency operations group level. Um, we're also in the process of providing support to anybody that has plans at the institution to make sure that they're. Um, being implemented and getting the support and information they need to execute those plans accordingly. And that could be continuity of operations plans. Yep. It could be individual relocation plans or communications plans that they need to implement. Yeah, we'll talk about the coop in a minute. That is. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So that's, that's kind of the general, and that all depends on the circumstances. Sometimes that's a two-hour event. Sometimes it's a multi-day event. So I've been here until 4 o'clock in the morning with a bunch of my favorite colleagues, Ooh. you know, hanging out during a utility failure that looked like it wasn't going to get itself resolved. Um, we've had hurricanes come through with coastal storms and things like that, that we had an on-site presence for multiple days to make sure we had support on the institution. Um, we've been fortunate at Mason, but I think we have the plans and procedures to contend with 
hopefully anything that comes our way, um, yeah. we're getting there. Let's assume something bad does happen. Then we move into the recovery phase, and there's a couple key things we do around recovery, and that's post-incident when the scene is secured and um, we're starting to assess the damage. We then look at continuity of operations, and that's you know how are we going to maintain those critical functions, not the entire institution, but just right. the things we deem most critical um, in the event that uh, that we have a reduction in workforce. It could be because people are ill or, God forbid, injured, mm-hmm. um, or we've lost a facility, right? We have, as a utility failure, a fire. Uh, severe weather damage is a building that otherwise renders it uh, uninhabitable. So then we start looking at those issues and figuring out how to move those folks with a lot of assistance from that department because we only know as much as they share with us um, to get them the support they need, to relocate them to an appropriate work location, what have you, that EOG is helping with that as well. And then another big thing is community assistance planning, and that is what's the support we're going to provide for the students, faculty, staff, and visitors that are impacted by this event? And this doesn't get nearly as much attention as it should. Sure. So when we first started looking at community assistance planning, and at the time I was a new emergency manager and very naive, um, I said, I can't speak to this intelligently. Let me bring someone in. And so we actually engaged um, Northern Illinois University and a couple of folks that were there uh, that came on after the unfortunate shooting they had there on Valentine's Day and um, asked them to walk us through what that community assistance looks like. It, it was a four or five-year effort, multi-million dollar effort to provide the the assistance the community need to recover from that because there's often a transition in the institutional culture there as any number of things that that need to be managed after that happens and and it's setting the vision and helping the student body recover from that traumatic experience Uh, it's something that not many folks think about but we will be involved in that emergency for many many years in some cases after the emergency but we tend to focus on just that that five to ten minutes we really need to be thinking better around long-term housing institution prepared for something like this, a sustained recovery effort. So we, we have a community assistance plan, um, and we're continuing to work on that because <laughs> it's important. Right on. And then we get into the mitigation part. So hopefully we're learning from these experiences, and we're looking at things and saying, you know what, if we did this, we could either prevent it from happening, which is that prevention step, which I started with, or we could mitigate the impact of that event on campus. So if we have repeated flooding on campus, hopefully we're at some point we're going, You're going to look at that. We should probably fix this stream bed. Yeah. Um, we're starting to look at climate change for that reason because we're starting to think, well, you know what, if we start having um, really hot days, you know, you know three or four consecutive days over 105 degrees, we know, talking with our facilities management folks, we could have some real issues with infrastructure and being able to keep our buildings cool. What does that mean? How are we going to mitigate that impact? And if it does occur, what, are we, what steps are we going to take? So that's, that's the mitigation phase. And we actually have a plan where we met with all the members of our emergency operations group to say, listen, what are your, what are your uh, biggest concerns and um, why? And then if that's your concern, how, how do you want us to, to mitigate that? And so we're in the process of gathering all that information so we can go to the administration and say, listen, we're, we've identified, let's say, communicable disease yeah. as our number one issue on campus. Here are some technologies and some procedures and processes and investments we can make to prevent this from becoming a real emergency on campus if, if we take these steps. Right that's mitigation planning. And then lastly, we're on a bunch of um, committees, obviously. Um, that happens to be my, my, my subject of my dissertation and, and my current book. So I'm, I, I love committees, and I'm on a bunch of them. <laughs> Might be, I might be the only guy that loves committees, but 
going to say that is not. I, lo- I love them. I absolutely love. Them. They're fascinating not a to commonly me. Commonly held. No, I know. And, <laughs> but so I get invited. In fact, I just got invited to another committee to explore uh, an educational program we're looking at here at Mason, and I was like, "This is awesome" because yeah. it's a totally new thing for me. I'm an administrator, yeah. so to get involved in something like that, I'm, I realize I'm going to get to see committees from a whole different perspective. So, right on. Um, anyway, a lot of committees, threat assessment. We're on tailgate committees. We're on building naming committees. Um, violence prevention. I mean, some of it ties back to emergency management. We've been on everything from background investigations um, to travel authorization and stuff like that. And so um, I enjoy that because I think unlike, and this is maybe a resource for for folks at other institutions, the advantage of being in emergency management is at some point you're going to have to touch every part of the organization. And it really is fascinating. So I've sat in meetings and going, this is amazing. I'm, I'm seeing a part of the organization most folks don't get to see. And then you get to go to the next meeting and someone will say something like, Wait, I just learned at this other meeting, um, you know, such and such is happening. Have you two talked? Okay. So in some sense, y- you become the glue and, and, the, and the messenger to, to communicate between departments, sometimes the Band-Aid. Um, That's fun because as the registrar, I, I get that same vantage point from an academic mm-hmm. standpoint and then moving sort of – tangentially into the student life side of things and you know into most everything that deals with a student comes through the registrar's office at some point Mm -hmm. and so participating in groups across campus is one of the great joys of Mm -hmm. being a registrar so that's fun that you're like but no really i'm the glue (laughs) well well, but i think you're the glue so i will i'll be the first to admit i don't understand the academic side of the house nearly as much as the administrative side of the house so i mean 90 percent of my time is probably administrative side of the house so that makes us the perfect team so emergency management and registrar's office need to get together because you understand because that's that's something I think we forget too. And again, I not to bash my administrative friends out there in higher ed, but um, and there's a couple of great books out there about the, administ- the rise of the administrative class and how terrible we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I think it's important <laughs> because we do lose sight of that. I, I honestly, I, I walk across campus sometimes, and I, I hope other people do this too. Otherwise, I, you know, this is a embarrassing admission. You know, there's there's 36,000 students here, and and I have to remember my audience, and it's I, so yeah. I have lunch in the, our, our student center. To remind myself, like these are the these are my customers. This these is who I'm serving. Because yeah. too often I spend my time you know, around other you know um, balding middle aged white guys, <laughs> and and I realize I'm losing perspective on this institution, and that includes you know out of being out of touch with the needs of the faculty. And so I've made a point to try to um, teach if I can, and I'm going to teach in the fall because I think it's important that we understand our institution, um, and so we can be better a better bond when we, when we serve as the glue. Absolutely. So, Agreed. So that's the miscellaneous part. So th- that's a ridiculous <laughs> amount of things that you're responsible for. And a lot of things that I had not thought of when I th- was thinking like emergency mm-hmm. management. I mean, like the fire drills. Right. Of course, that's a mm-hmm. function. But I just didn't hadn't put that together. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing you're that. Welcome. And, and I, I, uh, it's not all me. I, I, need no, to, no, I have no. a team I of people. There's a couple. You, there. Yeah, thank you. You're doing it all. Yeah. <laughs> you're doing it all. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people involved in this operation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we hinted at, uh, we've talked now a little bit about communicable disease Mm -hmm. and full disclosure, Mason had a scare where we suspected a student was, um, had Mm COVID-19. Can you give a little bit of information about sort of which plans kicked into gear, what kinds of interactions you were having with which organizations Mm -hmm. and what was your day to day like? Just as a sure. sort of a time capsule from that 
period. So I, it brings up an interesting thing. I think to be an effective emergency manager, it's uh, it's obviously a lot of uh, training and competence, but it's really down to relationships. So it was a Saturday night, and I got a phone call from a friend of mine who happens to be the emergency manager for the local health department. And um, because we met before and, and supported the health department in various capacities during H1N1, mm-hmm. uh, either as a volunteer mobilization center for all the folks that were going to distribute vaccine w- when that was released finally in our region, um, we had built that relationship already. So he calls me at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, you know, what, what, Jesse, what's going on? And we start talking through what, what's happening. And at that point, it was just a suspect case. And um, unfortunately, the, there's some other things that, that connected the individual to George Mason. So um, the next day, we were working really closely with everyone on our side. So this is, um, you know, Office of the Provost representation, University Life Re- representation, Student Health Services, obviously, Registrar, absolutely, because naturally the health department needs to know where the student was on campus. And, of course, the Registrar is the person to tell us where they might have attended classes. You got it. Um, and that's cr- critical, too, because at this point, the rumor mill is moving faster than the response. And that's almost always the case, sure. right? So social media was way out ahead of us and, and, and releasing things like the individual's LinkedIn profile. And so it was, there were some things we needed to contend with there. And I don't mean contend with it because we needed to protect the institution. We needed to contend with it to also protect the student, sure. right? Because now the student's in a, in a crisis situation, right? Where their name's being released, they might get um, might be intimidated by other people. So um, it was really important for us to get all that information together and then start communication. So I tend to draft most of our first communications and I obviously work with our strategic communications office to make sure it's safe for public consumption. I think I'm a decent writer, but again, they're, they're the experts. That's their full time. Exactly. So we worked quite a bit on that and then starting to think about the strategic response we were going to have in the event that this was a positive case, because at this point we have a lot of concerned people. It breaks in the news, um, media's on campus, interviewing students, um, the information students are sharing, some of which is accurate, some of inaccurate. Um, and, and that creates more challenges for us. So Monday, when we returned to work, uh, we convened the emergency operations group and said, listen, we've got this situation. And the week before, actually, I had threatened to do this. I just didn't get a chance to. Uh, pull the group together to start talking about our communicable disease plan. Mm-hmm. And so during H1N1, we refined our communicable disease plan. And then again, during the Ebola outbreak, to make sure the institution had a general sense, again, going back to more process than procedure. That's gen- the global Ebola outbreak. Exactly. Yeah, not yeah, have yeah, an yeah. Ebola Thank you for clarifying that, yes. At George Mason <laughs> University. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, we <laughs> did not. For the listeners yeah. at home. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, during the global, <laughs> yes, right. So we knocked the dust off of that plan and looked at all the phases we, uh, we operated in. So again, it's basically under these conditions, the institution should be doing roughly these things. And so uh, we did that and made sure that we were, we were following our plans. Uh, and then the rest of that week, we continued, continued to monitor, uh, stayed in close touch with the, um, with the local health department. The other thing that I did is, um, because there's a lot of chatter and other institutions were starting to release um, messages to their community about what they should and shouldn't do. And this is also about the time that the, the U.S. is starting to impose or talk about imposing travel restrictions. They didn't actually go into effect until the second, I think. So what, what I said is that we, we need to get some more people together. I mean, we're, we're pretty smart here, but there's other smart people in the region. So we pulled together that Friday a group of emergency managers and then their, um, their colleagues from student health. So we all got together at our campus down in Arlington and had a quick powwow and talked through, okay, what's everybody doing? What's the, how are you maintaining situational awareness? If you had to isolate students, how would you do that? What kind of guidance are you getting from your health departments to make sure we're all in sync so that Mason's not going it alone or no one of us is going alone in this journey when, when we have five or six or seven uh, potentially uh, um, contagious students on campus. Right. And so we had done this a couple years before. We actually brought in um, some experts from Princeton 
to talk through their experience. And um, maybe they're listening now and they'll know what I'm referring to. Um, but they've been a tremendous help because they were able to share with us the best practices and we were able to, to uh, modify our plans appropriately and then share some of that with our colleagues here in the D.C. area. So uh, that was something else that we did. So, again, it's making sure we're, we're checking ourselves against best practices and what other people are doing. Yeah. And um, and that was really helpful because we walked away from that with some some lessons learned. It actually triggered a subsequent email to our community around some travel restrictions and new things we wanted to put in place. So um, that was it was a really in, intense period of time. Um, it was a negative case, as we all know now. Which is a positive for us. But, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a positive-negative case. Um, and that, but that, that's the part of the emergency management I think I enjoy the most, is getting everybody together. And it's, what's incredible to me is under these circumstances, you tend to see, and this plays out in all emergencies, it seems, um, you see people come together in ways that you don't normally see. So there's, you know, there's less turf war, there's less politics. Everyone tends to put on um, you know, their, their best side and come with them their best. People it, it, are reminded in those situations of what matters right. and why we work in higher education mm-hmm. and who is really important to us in higher education. That's mm-hmm. the students and that's their experience. It's this um, building and growing and creating knowledge and you know, believing in the idea mm-hmm. that higher education can change the world. Right. And so like in these crises, people remember that. You mm-hmm. scrape the other stuff away about, well, I didn't get priority scheduling mm-hmm. in this classroom. So, <laughs> well, And you see the dependencies. Yes. You know, like on a day-to-day basis, I might not see how dependent I am on the registrar to do my job. But in a crisis, but it becomes, are. I, I, oh, I might, <laughs> we can't do anything. I mean, almost every emergency impacts the registrar in some capacity because typically it involves, well, it always involves students, but it also involves usually timing and university operations in some sense, and that's always going to impact class schedule. So everything from making our routine snowclaw closures to, um, you know, a building being offline, which has happened. We had a suspicious package situation at the JC, our, yep. our student, our main student center here recently. You know, there's classes that need to be relocated. There's faculty that are concerned. Uh, that has a ripple effect on the rest of the schedule. Um, yeah, we, we can't do any of this without one another. Right on. Mm-hmm. So this is a registrar-focused podcast, and let's talk about some of the ways the registrar's offices can and do assist with emergency planning. We started mm-hmm. to talk about it just now. So registrars are the stewards of student academic data. So we know and have access to the schedule of classes, which can come in handy when you need to know if, where a student is supposed to be at any given time or how many classes are being held in a particular building or just people traffic patterns between building to building at any given time. And in fact, the OUR here at Mason built a pretty nifty dashboard mm-hmm. for emergency management so that y'all can see how many students are scheduled to be on campus at any given time. Scheduled is the critical piece. Like they're registered for the classes. I can't guarantee that they're in those classes. <laughs> um, in what buildings, at what times of day, etc. Yeah. So what are some of the other ways that you can think of and would recommend for registrars to be involved with their emergency management planners at their institutions? So I think you've hit on the, the main ones. I mean, a lot of it is how do we manage the student body and, and move classes? That's probably the, and that, that can take a lot of effort yes. um, trying to shuffle schedules around, particularly if it's a, a prolonged event. So if it's a multi-day event, that becomes really difficult. Or if one particular building's offline, that becomes very challenging. And, but that happens under more circumstances more conditions than just emergencies. So, for example, we've had um, major events occur on campus, whether it's um, you know presidential candidates coming through campus. That can be a major disruption. So, yeah. again, 
talking through with the registrar what's the potential impact of this event and are we able to accommodate this event without um, without disadvantaging our students who are who are coming to the institution to get an education right yeah. it's it's two missions but they sometimes conflict with one another so I think that's one of the the, the big ones the the data isn't really critical I mean that's something we use for snow calls so when we're able to yeah. we're able to look at that list and say you know if we make a decision around um, delaying opening until 10 or potentially closing early at four how many students is that impacting and I also recognize that as the semester goes on students have determined which classes they need to go to and which they don't yeah um, but then also rescheduling those classes right so this is one of those things where I get done I wipe my hands and walk away I'm like yeah that was a great emergency no yeah. one got hurt <laughs> meanwhile you're going I've got six days of rescheduling to do here right so so that's where we need to be more I like to think about that because I realize I, the work is not done. My, my yeah. main job might be done, but the registrar's job is just starting. Yeah. So we need to be thinking about that too. And that goes back to one of your points too about what's the response, but mm-hmm. then what's the recovery. Right. And so that's a multi. Yeah, yeah. The rest of us have gone, gone back to stage. Yeah, it's going to take a lot longer to recover. Yep. The thing, and again, I, this may be something we can talk about a little bit more because I may be getting my 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 information wrong here, but. There is an assumption that when we have a, a coop event or we need to um, close a portion of the campus or a building, that we can just take instruction and move it from face-to-face to online with a flip of a switch. So that's not exactly true. Um, and this is one of the things that other institutions, uh, in particular uh, in China, mm-hmm. in South Korea, where it is a process mm-hmm. to get faculty to teach online for a an individual class meeting time, so one meeting period, a class section, um, that is not necessarily too much of a challenge. We at Mason create a Blackboard stub for every class section, and mm-hmm. then whether the instructor uses it or not is really up to the instructor, but they have that as a resource. And so if we needed to in an emergency situation, mm-hmm. and this too, it's going to unfold and gets unpacked in a variety of ways because in a way I can't tell and I wouldn't dare tell the faculty how to teach. Mm -hmm. Um, At best, I can tell them when and where they get to teach. And so changing a modality is not a directive that generally comes from the registrar's office. And so this would is one of those situations where the EOG would get together Mm -hmm. and then someone would decide that that's what needs to happen for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then the directive to do that would need to come through the president or the provost down to the deans, down to the department chairs, Mm -hmm. um, to individual faculty members who might be affected. But, you know, the Stern Center here has some training on how instructors can teach online, can move courses online. There is a movement um, to have an increased online presence So it's one of those things that we as an institution should always keep in our back pocket of in an emergency, and this is something we should communicate to faculty as an expectation as part of our culture, Mm -hmm. is that in an emergency, you will be expected to continue to deliver your course content potentially in a different modality. And so to help instructors from an early Mm -hmm. on, from a planning stage before the response stage, help them understand what resources are available to them um, and then to help and assist with training and practice if they feel like that's necessary, if they don't feel comfortable just shifting over. And again, like it, it comes down, we did this at Michigan State where we had a tabletop exercise where it was, again, a communicable mm-hmm. disease situation. And we were like, okay, we have to close the institution at week 13. 
Hmm. And so how do we do people get credit for the semester? Do we continue to try and offer classes in a different delivery mode? And this was Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't even 15 years ago, actually. So it wasn't even like, Oh yeah, of course you're going to teach online. It was a, what is online? Mm -hmm. Um, From a faculty perspective, the students had no problem. (laughs) Um, So that's one of the things where we just need to help faculty understand what the expectation is, what resources are available to them. And then the directive needs to be a directive from the academic side of the house, down from the president, Mm -hmm. through the provost, through the deans. Everybody needs to be on board about what's expected for what period of time. Mm -hmm. So That's exactly where I was going with this because I think the assumption is I was talking to a neighbor the other day and and we were talking about the coronavirus case and you obviously knew I worked at Mason and said, you know, why don't you guys just close? And why don't you go to those classrooms and just take the (laughs) – Right. And I almost did the same thing, except for neighbors. And I was like, hey, they'll never talk to me again. But yeah. I, that's what inside I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then, you know, the same thing it was like, well, just go to the classroom, and take all the desks out and burn them. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> so, so we got to talking, but, but that's the assumption. It's just, well, just, and we had the same thing from some folks that were concerned about the case before it was announced that it was negative. You know, why aren't you canceling classes and moving online? And, and I'm like, I understand the logistical challenges of that. You understand that. Yep. And so I, I appreciate that because I think that's exactly where, um, in partnership with the Office of the Provost, the registrar can help us with setting those expectations for faculty um, and then providing some assistance because that's a massive undertaking depending on how many people are impacted. Now, again, we're not thinking we'd close the entire institution. That's a different planning scenario. But one or two buildings, uh, a couple class sections for whatever reason. Yep. Absolutely. So if, say, for example, I don't know, the health department says, you know, section 101 of biology is now offline for the next two weeks. That's 300 students that now need to convert to potentially, you know, depending on the size of the biology class. But that's a lot of students. We need to figure out how to transition online yes. as well as the faculty. So I think there's that could become the most critical response strategy, depending on what the scenario is. And I think many institutions probably not thought that through all it, the way. It provides a remarkable amount of flexibility mm-hmm. as well. If it's a global crisis, as Mm -hmm. we're experiencing now with COVID-19, you can enable students to continue their learning from wherever they are. Mm -hmm. They don't have to come back to a particular place. Uh, And same with the faculty members. Mm -hmm. If the faculty are not able to travel or, you know, are uncomfortable traveling, Mm -hmm. they can offer the course content in an appropriate way, Mm -hmm. in an acceptable way. Uh, and continue on but that is a big lift and it is teaching online is different than teaching face to face Mm -hmm. and so that's one of those skills that instructors have to learn and be trained on and develop and getting the appropriate course content built and the way that they'll do assessments Mm -hmm. all sorts of things come into play when you do that so it is not just a oh Tomorrow, you'll be teaching online for the exactly. rest of the semester. Mm-hmm. But in an emergency, if you have to offer tomorrow's class Correct. online or it has to be canceled. Giving those two options, I think a lot of instructors will mm-hmm. say, all right, we'll do it online. Mm-hmm. We'll do a web stream, the lecture. Mm-hmm. And- We're working on that. We've actually partnered with the Stern Center to look at – we have a academic continuity template that we put together that we – yeah, you um, sent me a copy. We, we sort of borrowed – we had some of our own stuff already. We took some of the Stern Center stuff, and then we actually looked out at, at what other institutions are doing and, and, and borrowed from my colleagues in emergency management around right. around this topic. And so uh, we're hoping to make those resources a little bit more robust and have that become a practice. Um, one of the institutions down the street, also starts with, the, with George, um, has a great academic continuity program 
that when they when they close this institution for a snow day, for example, they say academic continuity is in effect, and then they have a list of the resources and ways. And it's similar to what we're proposing: is this is the way you can do a sort of ad hoc online instruction for the day, yeah. uh, two week, three weeks, much different scenario. And this is not really out of line with where a lot of employers are going as well. Agreed. So when the Fed is closed for snow, mm-hmm. if you are approved for telework, the expectation is that you will telework. That's right. That you're not off for mm-hmm. the day. Mm-hmm. You're working. Mm-hmm. You're just not going into the office somewhere. Exactly. And so that's, you know, as we are in an interconnected electronic world, mm-hmm. there is the expectation that the weather is not going to keep us from continuing on in whatever it is we're doing. One last yeah, thing about ahead. this, the, um, and I'm glad you mentioned weather. You know, a one-day event, not a, not such a big deal. Multi-day events are what scare me yes. uh, because you have to have a sustained response. You have to maintain that momentum, and you have to be kind of dedicated to that. The thing I get concerned about when we have multi-day emergencies is where do we start to run afoul of our accreditation standards? Yes. And that is something I don't have a really good sense of now. I just happen to be appointed to another committee around accreditation. I'm hey, excited about welcome. that one too. Thank yeah, you. I'm on that committee. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Because we're the glue. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. There we go. So that's the thing I start to worry about is, you know, after two weeks, when do we start having to make that, you know, go, no-go decision that could potentially disrupt the entire semester? Right. And that's when the health department started asking me around, you know, listen, when would you guys close campus or, or when would, you know, if we recommend closing ca- cla- or canceling classes, rather, what are you going to do? And I kind of snickered and go, I mean, it'd have to be, you know, I don't cold day in hell before we do that, honestly. I mean, because yeah. we're thinking, you're talking about regionally shutting down. I mean, it, public schools have to be out of, out of school. You'd have to have a much larger regional response before George Mason says, hey, you know what, we're just going to cancel classes. Yeah. Like that is, I, I, I sort of resent the idea that, that that's a billion-dollar decision. Yes, like, it, yeah, easily. Yeah. It, it's massive. And, and depending on the institution, it, it can make or break that institution. So um, that goes back to this whole, and again, through our various channels of communication, all of us, I think, need to do a better job of explaining higher education to um, our colleagues that are outside of, of higher education because um, I often sit in these emergency management meetings, and they're, and they're, they're telling us, you know, you know, sort of lecturing to us. And I go, we developed the lecture, guys. I mean, the, the, the textbooks that made you professionals were written by our institutions. I mean, not to say that we're better, but yeah. but there's this assumption that you know, we, we, we need help. And all. I'm like, no, we're, we're pretty self-sufficient. We got a lot of expertise inside of our institutions. It's a matter of getting it all together in the right spot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're pretty sharp for the most part. And um, and so I, I think there needs to be a little bit better job of, of of marketing higher education to the other professional fields outside our education so that we're not just seen as a really sophisticated public school system. I mean, we are, but there's a lot that comes with higher education that I think people uh, discount. Absolutely. So um, one last thing before we wrap up for today, mm-hmm. I want to talk about a continuity of operations oh, yeah. plan. We've mentioned them a couple of times. What is a continuity of operations plan? How do I know if I have one? Why do I need one? What do I do if I don't have one or if I have an old one that needs to be dusted off? Absolutely. So this is um, – and, and continuity operations, again, is on that backside, right? The, the side of, of an emergency most folks don't want to spend a lot of time on. So yeah. we look a lot of prevention, mitigation, um, planning, preparedness, and then um, obviously the response. That's the recovery part that people tend to eh, – we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. So COOP plans are really designed around two planning scenarios. One, a reduction in workforce for whatever reason, right? That could be, in this case, let's use coronavirus, right? Let's suppose it's as bad as it as we think it might be, and, and we start implementing uh, self-isolation periods for two weeks. What are you going to do for two weeks if a third or half of your staff are home? Um, what happens if the public school system's closed for whatever reason, and all of a sudden half our workforce has to stay home to provide child care because presumably daycares would close as well? Yep. 
in something like this anyhow. Um, so what are you doing? I mean, you've got a bunch of critical personnel. So COOP helps you identify what are you going to do with the reduction of workforce? What are you going to do as far as um, orders of succession, right? Uh, what are you going to do uh, if, um, if, if Dave happens to be out that day and I'm the only one that has access to our website, we need to update our website. So it's those types of things. So it's, it identifies key personnel, um, opportunities to do cross-training so that you can maintain those critical functions. And when I say critical functions, it, this can be a difficult conversation to have with departments. Everybody's job is important, right? But in a 30-day period, not everyone necessarily needs to do their job. So, for example, we do building inspections and, um, you know, for building inspections is a good one. Sure. Fire drills. We, we can push those back 30 days, 60 days. It's not convenient. It might disrupt some things down the road. But for those 30 or 40 days, we can suspend those operations and focus exclusively on the emergency management function, functions, the communications functions, things like that. So that has to be a very honest conversation within the department to figure out what do we absolutely have to do and what can we streamline. The other planning scenario is a loss of critical facilities. And that's, you lose a facility, and I like to think of COOP as in more realistic terms. We're not talking about the entire campus being obliterated because that's not a planning scenario we even want to think about or or can contend with. We've got a different planning scenario that needs to go into effect if that's... Precisely. Yeah, Yeah. it's called knock the dust off your resume and let's go rebuild somewhere else. So. The other planning scenario is we lose a building for whatever reason or multiple buildings. It could be because of a massive utility failure. It could be because of a fire. Um, I like to joke that sprinkler systems have caused more damage than fires ever have. We have more water damage on campus from you know a faulty sprinkler line or something like that than we ever have had on for, due to a fire. Um, but in active threats, another one of those examples, an active threat occurs in the building. More often than not, that building's taken offline so they can conduct an investigation, so they can rehab the building to make it look Difference. So there's not a triggering response for those folks that might have been in the building when the event, event occurred. Yep. So there's a number of different scenarios that take a building or buildings offline. If you can't get to your office, how are you going to maintain those critical functions? Are you going to work elsewhere? What does that look like? What about the technology that's in your office? Do you have access to that? The applications that are on your desktop? We, you know, there's a there's a, another false assumption that well, our ITS department will just restore all the applications I had on my desktop. No, they won't. Not if they're licensed to you. Right. They don't have that license. So there's all these things that we learned as in, the, in the course of of, um, of doing our coop planning that that illuminated some huge gaps. Right. So we we look at a gap analysis and the business impact analysis when we when we look at these critical functions to figure out okay these are the weak points. That's the other thing coop's really good for, uh, and then figure out ways to mitigate those. So at one point when we started coop many years ago, we discovered that our institutional website was hosted on somebody's CPU underneath their desk. Oh no. Yeah. So we're like, well, hold on a second. And, and we still occasionally discover things like that, not of that scale or significance, but we do discover there's there's some some very weak spots and some um, business functions here, and then we're, we're quick to address those. Yeah. Um, so I think COOP is valuable in a number of, of, uh, number of ways. Do you need one? That's a kind of departmental decision. Um, I would suggest sitting down as a group and going through the, what is it that we do? What would the institution look like? And what would the impact be if we didn't do A, B, C, and D for 30 days? Yeah. And, and think about all the different audiences. It might be, well, students would be just fine. Well, what about the faculty? Or what about the community members? Or what about the other downstream dependencies? Uh, you know, for example, is, is um, student um, financing, right? So student accounts, is that dependent on you in some capacity? Yeah. So if a student's unable to pull money from their Pell Grant, their loans because of a record issue in the registrar's office, that's a critical function. Um, so that's where I, you start to see all the interdependencies among the offices, which is, again, another benefit of being in the, in the emergency management field and participating in COOP. But also by being uh, involved in COOP as a department, you get to see where your dependencies um, and are with other functions of the institution. So yeah. COOP is valuable for that, that too. Um, 
how do you know if you're on Coop? Hopefully your supervisor sat down and talked with you and said, hey, you're on Coop. And by the way, you're, you're designated. So if we're closed, you need to come in. And that's not the case for everybody. A lot of stuff what we do now is, is remote, which is great. But yeah, there are certainly times where they're going to say, I'm sorry, you need to come into to, 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 to campus. As a matter of fact, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia has recently released some, uh, a new executive order that says uh, in a declaration of an emergency, the governor can suspend leave for state employees and reassign state employees. And that's something similar to COOP. You, know, you want to be thinking about that, too. We, that hopefully doesn't happen here at Mason, but as an institution, it'd be nice to know, you know, we need some expertise in this field. Dave, you're designated. We're going to pull you out of your position temporarily and assign you to the registrar's office to help with X. Yeah. Um, understanding who those key personnel are uh, helps us as an institution figure out um, who needs to be here and um, where we might have some gaps in, in training and, and, um, and backups that, that could become critical in, a, in an incident response. So that, that's that's really the, the I think the, the big thing. I and I looked at your coup plan before you came over today. Thanks for maintaining your coup plan. And and just an example of some of the things that we found critical, right? Yeah. And this isn't all of the things that you've identified, but academic records for obvious reasons. Yeah. Your audience can figure out a million reasons why that's got to be maintained. Classroom scheduling. We've talked a lot about why that's so important. Yep. University catalog and curriculum. I mean, depending on the time of year, that could be the single most important thing the institution needs to do. Uh, degree compliance, yep. you, the scenario you shared earlier about closing down two weeks before winter graduation, yep. not a good scenario. And then certification, that's enrollment status, domicile status, and veteran status. Obviously, if massive implications. that out, yeah. Huge. And then there's all sorts of other regulatory things that might come into play, whether it's fed, federal regs, DOE regs, or, or accreditation regs. So, right on. Yeah. David, anything else you want to offer as advice or suggestions to the registrars of the world? Yeah, I think, um, and we struggle with this. I I hope that um, I hope that all everyone listening gets an opportunity to meet with their emergency manager. I I know that sometimes it's a burden. I coop. I'll be honest, it's not fun, and and someone once described it as insurance, and it's, it's a real pain, but it's necessary. Yeah. That that unfortunately, in some cases, it sort of describes a lot of emergency management. Like, why do I have to be prepared for this? Why do I have to participate participate in this exercise? This is never going to happen. Um, so what I've tried to do is say that's that's possible, but what it does do, and what you and I both appreciate, is it creates those relationships between us and the rest of the department, rest of the institution. So by participating in emergency planning and emergency management, you're really figuring out and defining your role, both specifically and holistically within the institution. So I've tried to pitch it more as a this is a way for us to be a better organization in general, but at the same time we're satisfying the, the need to be prepared for what could happen. Right on. Thank you so much for taking some time. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate you putting this together and sharing your expertise with us. So I, I enjoy it. very much. I don't normally get to be the center of attention unless something bad happens. So this is, <laughs> this is a refreshing uh, experience for me. Right on, right on. Thank you. Thanks so much. I want to say a big thank you to Mason's emergency manager, Dr. David Ferris, for taking the time to share his expertise with us today and for being part of the glue that helps to make the institution a safe environment for students, faculty, and staff to engage in the work of higher education. So go meet with your emergency manager on your campus. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, share the link, and subscribe to the mailing list. Until next time, cough into your bent elbow. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.